KYW Original Podcasts. For more stories about the coronavirus pandemic in Philadelphia, subscribe to KYW In-Depth on the Radio.com app or wherever you listen to podcasts. The coronavirus pandemic from KYW In-Depth. I'm Matt Leon. So there has been a lot of talk about the possibility of an app helping to trace COVID-19 cases and and helping to contain the outbreak down the road as a kind of a big tool that would help get us back towards normalcy. But what would that look like? And maybe more importantly, what about the concerns about privacy? I mean, you're talking about people's medical information. Uh, Would it be private? Would it be protected? How would that work? We had a lot of questions about this. So to get some answers, we talked with Dr. Matthew Schneider, an assistant professor at Drexel University's College of Business. He's done a lot of research involving data privacy. Uh, interesting conversation. Give a listen. So let's kind of start at ground zero. Uh, when it comes to data privacy, what's our current state? How secure would you say uh, the average American's data is in today's day and age? I would say it's not secure. The state is poor. Um, as you know, there's a lot more data being collected year after year. Uh, There was a recent report by Verizon on 2019 about data breach investigations, and there were over 2,000 confirmed data breaches worldwide. Uh, That was about the same number in 2018, so not much is improving. And keep in mind, those are only the data breaches that Verizon knows about. Uh, I suspect a uh, a lot of other data breaches are not reported. In addition, I would say probably the focus is misdirected. Right now, there's a, a very large focus on legal compliance and playing the blame game with fines and and avoiding responsibility. Like for example, T-Mobile, Sprint, and AT&T were selling geolocation data. That's your cell phone data, right? Uh, you're at this particular place at this particular time. They were selling it to data aggregators. That then got in the hands of of other entities like like bounty hunters. You could pay a bounty hunter. Uh, a couple hundred bucks and find out where somebody was based upon their cell phone data. So, um, you know, AT&T and the rest of them, they got fined, I think about 200 million, but they still defended uh, the sale of this personal data, location sales data. So in my opinion, the focus should be, you know, instead of defending against these symptoms of, of poor privacy up front. So, so GDPR and CCPA, so GDPR, this is, this is Europe's data protection regulation, and CCPA is one from California. California generally leads uh, the U.S. In, in any kind of legislation that comes down. So these are great first steps. Uh, this is all about complying. This is about how organizations can keep their data safe. But y- you need to recognize that of these 2,000 data breaches and in 2019, about a third of those were from internal actors like employees. So even with the best compliance and regulation, that does not mean that somebody inside of your organization is going to leak the data or purposely give it to somebody else. So really what there needs to be is, is um, a, a need for developing technological solutions uh, that meet certain privacy criteria in a way that does not destroy the data. Right, so this is turns out to be a really hard technological problem. Uh, certain organizations, like the Census Bureau, are tackling it, but they have some of the world's top scientists, economists. You know, they're spending tens of millions of dollars on that. So this this turns out to be a hard problem. You mentioned the the focus was misguided. Is that 
a, a lack of understanding on the companies? Is it a financial decision? It's just easier to go this way. What do you think for the most part is the reason that they're kind of looking or, or dealing with the wrong things? Sure. So, so, so first I'm, I'm not a lawyer. So, um, you, you know, whatever I say might not be the best uh, strategy, uh, for a company. I'm just looking at the actual consumer data that's, that's getting out there anyway, regardless of regulation. So, so, um, what I say by the focus is it appears to me that a lot of it's, uh, basically minimizing, uh, legal costs or, or, or the penalties from your data getting breached, not so much what the consumer actually loses, uh, or are you going to protect your data up front, right? So that if a data breach happened, nobody would be, be able to identify any of your consumers, right? So that's like a different, a different type of question than does any data get out? Nobody's really asking what are the kinds of data that, that get out, right? And, and now there's a whole industry, basically cyber insurance for this sort of thing, right? So if you look at those underwriters, I, I'd wonder if they're actually asking, well, which, which exact data do you have? And if that gets out, how much of it is exposed, right? So, so my argument is more, let's assume that the data gets out and let's be proactive, right? And protect it up front, but do it in a way that we're not destroying the original purposes of collecting this data because there is some value to it. So that type of approach, I think, needs a, a greater focus. And you've done a lot of work uh, on kind of doing a, a deep dive with this with regards to consumer surveys. And uh, I know some recent research you put forth kind of proposed a way to safeguard data even more so. Kind of talk about, take us through what uh, you, you put on the table there. Sure. So this is just one example. So there was a quality of life survey given in Austin, Texas, right? It was given to about 2,600 Asian Americans. Uh, just for perspective, there's only 90,000 Asian Americans in the city of Austin. So immediately, this is a significant percent of, of uh, the population of Asian Americans. The problem with this survey, uh, there were many problems, was that they asked too many questions, too many personal questions. So some of these questions would be like, What's, what is your ethnic origin? And there were literally uh, 37 you know, different responses. They included things like uh, Burmese or Filipino, uh, Punjabi, right? So, so, so detailed and even what's your age, 43, 88, and what's your zip code, that essentially you could figure out everybody, right? You could uniquely identify almost everyone. Here's the problem. That survey was performed on behalf of the city of Austin because they really wanted to improve the quality of life for Asian Americans. Well, then it was released to the public, all those responses, right? So it didn't have anybody's name in it. But you could figure out who everybody was based upon their zip code, age, and other information they provided. So this is part of these open data movements. Even Philadelphia has one. You could uh, throw into Google open data Philly, and you find all these data sets, including crime data sets where somebody was arrested uh, at a certain time and location, right? So with this particular Austin data set, on top of that, once they were able to be identified, these people, there were personal questions like how affordable is your housing? Uh, what's your level of income? How religious are you? Do you have a smoke detector in the home? So that could relate to an insurance claim, right? If they compost and so on. So the message is fairly simple from my point of view. First, it's don't ask so many questions. Or if you're a respondent to the survey, be very careful with the information you give out. 
because sometimes the original intention of a survey to improve the quality of life of Asian Americans is not how it could be used later on, later down the road, right? So the solution for the research that I did joint with uh, Don Ayakabuchi was to permanently alter the responses from the survey takers. So from these 2,600 and some odd Asian Americans in Austin. So one way to think about that is a lot of organizations do this thing naturally, right? So let's say you have somebody who's 88 years old in a data set. Obviously, you probably don't know too many people that are 88 years old, so they're pretty identifiable. So they might change the person's age from 88 to 65 and above. So now you're in this big bucket. It's harder to identify somebody. Um, But the problem with doing that is that you can really destroy insights about certain quality of life indicators for the elderly Asian American population in the city of Austin, right? So our solution was, was different. We would shuffle the data in a way to mathematically guarantee uh, the accuracy of any analysis on the quality of life, specifically the correlation. So, for example, suppose above average Asian Americans were associated with uh, earning lower income, and then below average Asian Americans were associated with earning a higher income. So we could replace the age of an 88-year-old Asian American with a different number, like 33. But we would only do so if we also changed the income, because we wanted to make sure that the insight that below average Asian Americans were associated with higher income, that insight was maintained. And that's, that's sort of like a correlation. Okay. So that's how it works, but it can be used on dozens of these survey questions. And in doing this, we were able to maintain accuracy uh, within about 5% uh, with this method and also protect the identifiability of the survey respondents, these 2,600 Asian Americans. Other methods, um, would lose accuracy anywhere between 15 to 50% to get the same level of privacy. So that's sort of, you know, what this is about is, is trading off um, ac- some accuracy, a little bit of accuracy to get a lot of privacy, right? And it's just um, a question of how big of a trade-off uh, do you want to make? Just about everything with in this is, is basically a trade-off, isn't it? I mean, kind of at every level. Yeah, it's a trade-off, and this is uh, simply a social choice between privacy and accuracy, right? But in order to make that choice, you first have to agree that increasing privacy requires a decrease in accuracy, right? You can't get any something for free. So if you want to increase privacy, you must decrease accuracy, right? So there's a recent article in American Economic uh, review um, by uh, About and, and Schmoody, which which goes into this in detail. But you know, just simply password protecting your data, and then somebody gets the password, and somebody gets the encryption key, right? If it's the real data, okay, you're not giving away any accuracy because when that data gets out, the privacy is still going to be just as bad. So again, uh, first people have to agree that increasing privacy requires a decrease in accuracy. So I'd like to kind of move towards the, the current moment we're, li- we're living through, because I think data privacy is going to be uh, very important. It's always important, but specifically with the COVID-19 outbreak, because you hear a lot of discussion of one of the paths to getting back to kind of a normal life are apps that you can have on your phone that would kind of monitor your health conditions and let you know if you're sick or if you've come in contact with people and 
what are the concerns about going in that direction uh, and how risky would it be from a privacy standpoint? Sure. Um, so, so this is obviously a public health crisis that's going on. There's also a huge privacy risk with some of this uh, geolocation data in apps. Um, I think it's going to have to be regulated uh, by, by HIPAA. Right, so so that's how all all of your medical data is regulated, Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, and um, I guess I would argue that since this is a public health crisis, the argument for privacy is the weakest, right, compared to these two over two thousand data breaches uh, at different organizations last year, right. So if there's any any particular case where we're going to give up privacy, uh, this could be it, but really we need to ask some questions before we give up that privacy and people should think about what is the purpose and usefulness of displaying this, this data in the first place, right? So you might have, Hey, uh, some person with, uh, you know, COVID-19, uh, they were on this street and then they walked to this next street and then they went back to what appears to be their home. How is that going to help anybody? Right? So first we need to clearly understand how that pathway, uh, would, would help people, and improve public health? Are people going to avoid those patterns? I, I don't know. So what actions would people do differently? And are they in the interest of public health, right? Or are they simply more accusatory in nature? Like, hey, uh, I can figure out this person lives here and they, they have uh, the virus. So let's, let's do something, right? So keep in mind that even if a person's name isn't attached to this data, where they've been to like three or four different places, uh, you know, at 11, 15 a.m., they're on the corner of uh, 23rd and uh, Market, even though their name's not attached to this, there's no such thing as anonymous data. So, so what's the risk? Take, for example, Philadelphia. Philadelphia has about 1.5 million people in its population, right? So how many GPS locations from your, your mobile phone do you think you need to identify somebody uniquely, right? So just think about that for a second. Turns out, there's some coincidental research that actually uses cell phone data with 1.5 million people as well. And you only need four GPS points with a timestamp to uniquely identify 95% of the individuals. So what that means is your pathway when you're walking with your cell phone, as soon as you get about four GPS points, you are unique. And if you did that, if you were able to take everybody and their, their walking paths are, are unique, then you can figure out everywhere else they went to include their home or apartment because they're always going to you know, be going back there at night. So you don't even need their name. You could figure out from the public tax records or the real estate records and then associate that location of that apartment where they are to their name and whether they actually you know, had or, or have COVID-19. So this was also shown in a previous open data set from New York City, the New York uh, City Taxi and Limousine Commission, they released 124 million driving routes from taxis and limousines. They thought it was anonymous. What they didn't realize was that a lot of these taxis and limousines, you know, go back to the driver's home at night. So then everybody figured out who was who, right? So again, how do you protect this geolocation data set? You might, you might consider some sort of gridding. I have a, a, a brand new PhD student who's going to be starting his second year 
His name is Cameron Bale, and he's working on this problem at Drexel. So, so he's going to come up with some solutions, hopefully, to protect this geolocation data. But it's it's tough because you're not only talking about uh, the you know latitude and longitude of where you're at, but also the specific time uh, of the place you're at. So, so this is a challenging problem. And you know, I'll just reiterate that why are we displaying this data? What what is the reason? What actions would people do differently in the interest of public health? So that needs to be addressed first. But all that being said, do you think if you told the average person this app, however it's designed, would help us get back to where society was in February of 2020? Do you think the majority of society would be willing to trade off whatever privacy to get on that track? Good good question. Um I think yes. I, I think they would, especially in a crisis. But I also think that several months later, or a year later, they'll want it back, right? They'll want their privacy back. So that's the trick, right? It's w- once you let it out there, it's gone. So perhaps the discussion needs, you know, about this trade-off between privacy and accuracy, or, or you can view accuracy as the purpose of using your data needs to be at the organization level as well, right? So I don't even think companies are are ready for this sort of discussion. Uh, Right now, they're more worried about compliance. So it could even take a few years to get get there. I know we don't have that. Um, But yeah, I think maybe something could be done quick. Uh, For example, dividing the city up into nine regions if you're going to use this geolocation uh, data, like a three-by-three grid. And then making sure that you're only releasing, you know, cell phone uh, space time stamps from those particular regions in the grid and not specifically where people are. So I think something quick could be done. But, yeah, I do think that um, people might be willing to give up their privacy a lot more easily, you know, up front. But on, on the tail end, once things get out there and things get serious enough, they'll probably want it back. And my final question, if... There's a way to find to do an app for the the virus. Then they're able to track and contain, but gives the amount of privacy that's necessary. Could that be kind of a roadmap for better data privacy overall? Like if we can kind of find a way to get it right there, wouldn't that help kind of uh, a lot of the problems we talked about in the early parts of our discussion? Yeah. Yeah. So you want to, so, so the, the secret is you want to do it up front, either in the data collection, right? Or, or change the actual data set itself before it goes to the app and gets to everybody. So you sort of want this privacy by design, you know, w- within your app. So there's things you could look up online like called differential privacy, which is a very strong theoretical guarantee of privacy. Uh, one question with that is, can you still make the insights that you want to make with that very, very strong level of privacy? So uh, there's, there's other unique things out there, like um, even for survey data, it's called randomized response surveys. So this is an idea. Uh, let's say you ask somebody if they have uh, COVID-19. And they answer that in their head and they say, well, it's yes in their head. And then they roll, um, you know, they roll a die or uh, they flip a coin. Let's say they roll a die and it's uh, four, five or six. If it's four, five or six, they change their answer from yes yes to no. 
If it's one, two, or three, they keep their answer at yes. So this is called like a randomized response. So this is at the consumer level, right, or, or the individual level, where they're actually changing the data themselves. So when they submit it, um, you don't know if it's real or not. But when you look at the overall averages of the data set, those should maintain, uh, you know, those should be fairly constant. So um, that's protecting the data at the point of collection. And then there's protecting the data after it's collected. Uh, there are certain papers already available on that, but differential privacy would be the strongest guarantee. So you should start with that, see if you can um, meet the objectives of releasing the data first or the purposes for displaying that data. And then if you can't, you know, you should look at some other solutions like the ones that were in my paper. That's it for this episode of KYW In-Depth Coronavirus. For more stories about the coronavirus pandemic here in the Philadelphia area, or if you want to know how what you see or hear on the news is going to change your own life or your own routine, then subscribe to the KYW In-Depth podcast. Search for KYW In-Depth on the Radio.com app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. My name is Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.